0: Born on the Cambodian New Year in a Thai refugee camp, our guest today, Soshita Pov, never knew how she got there. After her birth, her family left the past behind and moved to Texas, where they never told their story of surviving the Khmer Rouge genocide. In this, her first documentary, Pov journeys to Cambodia and discovers the truth about her family. New Year Baby won the highest human rights cinema honor, Amnesty International Movies That Matter Award and is slated for national broadcast on PBS's Independent Lens in 2008. Sashita Pov, welcome to Film School.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And how are you today?
1: I'm doing great.
0: This is your first film. Had you had any experience making film before uh, New Year Baby?
1: No, this was my first film. Um, My background is in television news. I worked Ah. four years in New York at uh, ABC and NBC News, but it's completely different than making your own independent film.
0: I can imagine. Now, what inspired you to make this film? You could have made a book about this story. There's a lot of ways to go about this, but instead you decided to do a documentary about this uh, question you had. About your family?
1: Yeah, well, for most of my life, I thought I would want to write a book about the story, if only just to find out from my parents exactly what happened to them. But when I started working in television, it just seemed like a natural thing to make a documentary instead. When I first started, I had no idea what I was doing. It really started just as a glorified home video. Literally a month before I left for Cambodia with my parents to shoot, I was getting lessons on how to use the camera. And the first lesson was how to turn it on. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, did you did you rely on anybody from ABC News or people you had met uh, through your experience there? to make this?
1: Well, NBC and ABC were both really supportive in giving me, in terms of giving me time off uh, when I needed it. I got two leaves of absence from my employer uh, to make the film. Mm -hmm. And finally, I left my job in February because it it became impossible to have a full-time job and also pursue promoting the film around the world. But they were very supportive. In fact, my first camera and audio kit Was borrowed from one of the major network stations, and what they said to me was, Don't break it (laughs) before I left.
0: So, did you break it?
1: No. (laughs) Everything came back in great condition. Uh, Oh,
0: good. What part of the movie did I see that is some of the first film that you ever took? Is there parts that are, you know, kind of the the first time of pushing the button that you weren't really sure what you were doing? Is that a peer?
1: Sure. Some of the most difficult times to shoot was when I was holding my camera and the camera was running and I was meeting family members in mm-hmm. Cambodia that I had never met before. Yeah. And these were obviously very emotional reunions, not only with my parents who hadn't seen these relatives for 10, 20 years sometimes, but for me who had never met these, these cousins, aunts and uncles they wanted to touch me, they wanted to embrace me, and I wanted to capture the moment as well. Uh-huh. So sometimes you'll see them grab me and the camera will, will lose focus or yeah. I, will, I will bow to, to greet them and the camera will bob up and down <laughs> <laughs> because I'm both trying to be respectful and trying to catch the moment. On the second time, the second shoot we went to Cambodia, uh, we had a real shooter and, and a second camera and a production mm-hmm. coordinator, so that made those emotional moments a lot easier to capture.
2: So let's back up and kind of walk through the story. Don't give it away now. I know. I don't want to be... uh, There's no spoilers here. I I just want to make sure that people understand what New Year Baby is about.
1: Well, four years ago, before I started making the film, I went home for Christmas with my family in Texas. It was one of those holidays where everybody was there. Mm -hmm. All of my siblings were home, and my mother called a family meeting all of a sudden, So we went back to a back bedroom, and my mom proceeded to tell me, my brother, my two older sisters, my father was also in the room, that even though they had raised us in this normal nuclear family, we're not nuclear at all. And in fact, my two older sisters are actually my biological cousins. (laughs) My brother is actually my half-brother from my mother's previous marriage to a man I never met who died, which made me the only child of my two parents. So my, my mother dropped this bomb on us and basically walked away wow. from the meeting. Uh-huh. And a year later, I returned with them to Cambodia to find out how my family was formed and how all of this happened.
2: What prompted her at this point to bring this up?
1: I've, I've pressed her about that a lot. And I think what it came down to is that she had wanted to tell us the secret 10 years earlier, actually. But she kept on putting it off. <laughs> for mm-hmm. 10 years, until finally she couldn't wait anymore and mm-hmm. decided this is the moment to tell us.
2: And that must have been a, just a, I can't, what, what impact did that have on your family as you're sitting all sitting in this room looking at each other and maybe in different ways than you had before?
1: Yeah, well, my sisters already knew the secret because okay. they were old enough to remember their first families, but they had been told by my mother to never say anything. So in some ways, I think keeping that secret was was equally traumatic. You know? mm-hmm. For the rest of us, we just sat there in a circle and cried, and I remember being shocked, and I also remember feeling a little bit like I was betrayed because I felt like my parents didn't trust me with this information. Mm-hmm. It really didn't change the dynamics in our relationships. I mean, I, I still consider my sisters as my sisters mm-hmm. as always, mm-hmm. but in some ways it changed everything as well. Mm-hmm.
0: How did you approach your family with your idea of making this documentary? Did you did you take it slow or did you just make an announcement?
1: I definitely took it slow and from the beginning I didn't know what this would become. I didn't know if this would be a real documentary film or these would just be, you know, tapes that I would have in my mm-hmm. family that that I would show my children when I'm older. So I just told them You know, we're going to Cambodia, and I've decided to bring a camera that I'm borrowing and some mics, and I want to get your story uh, once we're there. And that's how it started. And as the project grew, at that point, you know, then I had to tell them, okay, well, it's going to have a national broadcast on PBS now. (laughs) (laughs) which is a little bit of a shock.
2: So this was your idea to go to Cambodia? You Actually,
1: were... my, my parents offered to take me. Okay. They had wanted to take me for a really long time, but okay. I felt like the confession that they made the year earlier yeah. uh, really opened something up um, for us because they knew that you know they couldn't bring us to Cambodia with these, with these secrets that they were trying to hide. So they offered, and I said yes, and I said, by the way, I'm bringing a camera.
0: Okay. Was, was there a particular point when you were making the film that you said, aha, this is a documentary now. I want to see if I can get circulation on this. It's not a home movie anymore.
1: When I came back from Cambodia, um, I was sitting there and just watching the footage and logging it and taking notes. And I knew that there were some incredibly emotional and authentic moments that I managed to capture. Mm. And and that was all about access and, and having you know my family and, and the other relatives being completely disarmed about the fact that I'm shooting them. You know, I don't think anybody else, it would not have been possible for an outside filmmaker to come and get this kind of authentic moment. Yeah. So I knew that was special, but I still didn't have a clear idea about what the narrative structure of the film would be. So that's why I knew that I had some part of the story there, but there was more to get. So I knew that I had to go back to Cambodia to really make a film.
2: We're speaking with
0: Sajita Puv. The film is New Year Baby. Was there any uh, problems filming in Cambodia at all? When you got there, did, was there any resistance to this? Because there are some extraordinary moments there, too. I mean, you you do... Talk to some camera Rouge at some points in time there. Was there a, a problem in any of this?
1: It wasn't a problem just because our production was so small. We just used, you know, small mini DV cameras, uh, the wireless mics. We uh-huh. didn't have a boom mic or anything like that. So we really were able to stay off the radar of any local or national government. If you are a larger production, it's expected that you will pay an extreme amount of graft. The wow. government government to be able to shoot there, but thank goodness we were so small that you know no one noticed us.
2: Well, you, it's almost like you were making a home movie. Exactly. For, for any film buffs out there, filmmakers, is there a particular camera? Can you tell us the kind of camera you were using?
1: Well, my first trip, I started on the Sony PD one hundred and fifty, mm-hmm. and then a year later. The uh, Panasonic DVX100 came out, and that's what we use, which is a, a, a camera that I just love.
2: In the early parts of the the film, you're at one point you interview your parents, and they're sitting on what a love seat next to each other, and just the sort of body language and the description of their relationship as one. Descri- your mother describes one thing, and then your father describes his relationship with with your mother and their body language. It's such a there's 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 so much in that. And just in that interview in terms of there's sort of an emotional, I, I don't want to mischaracterize it, but it's an emotional distance. There, there seems really, to be yeah. the great thing about this film is, is as you move forward in this in this journey, if you will, um, you do see them breaking down a lot of the barriers between themselves and between you and certainly between you and the camera or them and the camera. Mm-hmm. And it really is remarkable the way that they sort of transform over the course of this uh, this film. Were you surprised by that?
1: I wasn't. And, you know, in filmmaking, in my opinion, the the story is really crafted in the editing, in the editing room. Mm -hmm. So all of those moments of when they're really distanced and then when they're very intimate, you know, we're taken at different points in time. And -hmm. then in the edit room, it's your job and the editor's job to create the change and the growth in the character. My relationship to my parents has always been hot and cold like that. You Mm -hmm. know, I see them sometimes when they're, a little bit affectionate, they might hold hands. And then I see them sometimes when I can't even believe these two people have lived together for almost 30 years. They just act like they can't stand each other, are completely incompatible, have, have no functioning relationship. And then on the other hand, I also understand why they've been together for so long. So that dichotomy has always been there with them. And that's, what I wanted to understand more and really unpack in the film.
0: Now, you said you brought it out by using editing, too. How much yeah. were you involved in that process?
1: I was in the edit room every single day. Uh-huh. That we edited, and my editor, actually, is not one of those editors who enjoys having director there, you know, <laughs> standing over her shoulder the entire time. Uh-huh. Um, but I wanted to be there. And also, much of the footage is in Cambodian, is in Khmer. Yeah. So... Therefore, I had that excuse. Well, you had a. <laughs> I ex- did to translate for her. There you go.
0: It was your family, too. It's well, a little bit different situation. I'm sure your editor understood to some degree what was going on
1: here. Yeah, but yeah. I also, I mean, I get why she needs that space and that mm-hmm. distance, and she's a, a complete pro at working with personal documentaries. I actually think she's one of the best editors mm-hmm. in the country for personal documentaries, and I understand why she needs that to kind of experiment and try things out. And her name is Sandra Christie. She's done a lot of films that have aired on PBS. Um, I think three or four of her films have been to Sundance. Uh, She's she, such a veteran. She, it
0: looked really nice, and there were some shots there, especially if your parents were. It it lingered a while and said a lot in the silence of it lingering on a, on a scene. I appreciated that. And also, too, just to go back to your camera work, you said it was kind of rough at the beginning. You were trying to express your Joy at meeting some people while at the same time filming the the in calendar. But I I thought that was nice. I really enjoyed that you were holding the camera. It was obvious you were, and I thought that was a nice touch to the film.
2: Thank you. Getting back to your relationship with Sandra Christie, the editor. There's always going to be some kind of creative tension between an editor and a director. Certainly, something as intimate as this has. Yeah. You're you're so emotionally invested, but at the same time, you've got to appreciate someone who can come in with a a more objective perspective and can see the film, can see what you have, and ways that you wouldn't see it as far as telling a story or making a cut that would be better for the audience. Did you find that? Was that a relationship? Did that work on that level?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because I knew the story so well, I found myself not wanting to give everything away, not explain certain things. And Sandra always took the perspective of the audience saying, People have no idea where Cambodia is. They have no idea what the Khmer Rouge is. You know, you really need to create a foundation for people to understand the context and then be emotionally invested in the film. She always stood by that. Yeah. And I think she was right about that.
2: Well, it served you well. I also wanted to make a mention. By the way, I want to uh, mention that New Year Baby, while it's scheduled to be shown on PBS uh, next year, is also on the festival circuit. It's been doing very well, been selling up. Yeah,
1: absolutely. We've had unbelievable reactions from the audience. I mean, I I rarely see a documentary where the audience gets so emotionally moved by a film. Hmm. Um, So that's been completely gratifying.
0: It's won a number of awards. The the Amnesty International Movies That Matter Award, which is congratulations on that.
1: Thanks, and we won best documentary at two film festivals, That's and recently won the audience award in LA. So, well,
2: and I, and I bring this up because it currently is does not have a distributor. So, all of the distributors who are listening to Film School uh, should should be paying attention to this. I wanted to also bring up the work of the animators in the, yeah. the, that you use. While you didn't use it a lot, it was used very effectively to sort of illustrate a story. How did you come upon that idea, and who did you work with on that?
1: The anim- The animators that we worked with are named Paul and Sandra Fierlinger. They've done a number of feature-length animated films. Um, Paul has been working for 50 years in animation. He's he's really incredible. And the reason I wanted to use animation was at the outset I knew there were certain scenes I wanted to depict, but there were no photos of of that particular event. I didn't want to use generic archival footage because I thought that would be impersonal. And obviously, I didn't want to use reenactments because they might be cheesy. Yeah. And I thought of animation. And the reason I thought it was a perfect fit, because there is this theme about memory in the film. You know, what you mm-hmm. remember is not necessarily how it happened. And I felt that animation could really capture that mm-hmm. well. Also of, of dreams. You know, yeah. I, had a, I had a certain dreams and, and memories of... What the Khmer Rouge time was like, and that wasn't necessarily how it was either. So I felt like animation could really play into all of those issues and play in that area in a way that nothing else could.
0: You still have those dreams?
1: I don't. Those uh-huh. were all childhood dreams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now that I've seen so many films about Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge, yeah. <laughs> I have I have more more vivid, I think, uh, dreams that are closer to yeah. to the. the archival footage.
2: Now, in your film, you, you talked about the Khmer Rouge, and just a real quick, brief history uh, of Cambodia. Uh, the Khmer Rouge came to power in the early 70s uh, as the Vietnam War was sort of spilling over into Cambodia. Would it be right. about 1974, 75 that they took power?
1: 1975.
2: 75, yeah, and unleashed, unshirted hell on Cambodia and their reign of terror. For, lasted for about how long?
1: Until 1979.
2: 79. So, in four years, two million or so. How many Cambodians perished during that
1: time? Yeah, it's estimated about two million people, yeah. and that's a quarter of the population.
2: All right. right. That's amazing. In four that's years. A staggering yeah. number. And you mentioned in the film that the Khmer Rouge, the, the people who were. Involved in that have faded into the background, faded into the population of Cambodia. Do they have any power today? What is the sort of the social and political dynamic uh, regarding the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia today?
1: From 1979 to I'd say ni- 1992, there were still factions of the Khmer Rouge that were armed, that were organized, uh, living in the jungles of Cambodia, and they would sometimes come out and and cause trouble. But the government itself was installed by the Vietnamese communists who had run the Khmer Rouge out. Since 93 or so, the the Khmer Rouge have completely disbanded, and they they are no longer in power, although the senior cadre are still alive and living freely. But there was a group of Khmer Rouge uh, soldiers and commanders that defected from the Khmer Rouge side and joined the Vietnamese who eventually overthrew, you know, the regime they're previously a part of. And and some of those members are in power in government today. Mm. Now, I don't think they still have any Khmer Rouge sympathies, but as you may or may not know, this year they're scheduled to start a tribunal to prosecute senior members of the Khmer Rouge. So there's a huge conflict of interest there, you know, with the prime minister himself being a former Khmer Rouge commander, um he may have some interest in making sure that nothing embarrassing comes to light out of this trial yeah.
2: in terms of the sort of the social fabric of Cambodia has there been any acts of, of vengeance on on people i i couldn't imagine there were, weren't but was it, was there a widespread sense that these people need to pay the price for what they what they done
1: i've read some accounts and books that there were some isolated yeah. cases of revenge killings and violence, yeah. but I can't say that it was a widespread phenomenon, right. um, and I think Cambodians are a little bit at a loss about how to, how to find justice yeah. in this case, and they're not sure that the trial will serve that.
2: Where are we now uh, as far as New Year Baby? Uh,
1: in July, we're, we're showing at the Asian American International Film Festival in New York, and that will be our New York, New York premiere. Um, we're going to be at the Martha's Vineyard Film Festival in August. And invitations just keep coming, so you never know.
2: And people who want to organize their own small private screenings, uh, you can do so by going to the website.
1: Uh, yeah, sure. The website is newyearbaby.net. And uh, although we've you know spent a lot of time, money, and energy creating this film, I was always clear that the mission of this work is more than just a film. Mm-hmm. Um, what we really want to do is use the film as a tool to create a dialogue right. about. Uh, healing, justice, and reconciliation for Cambodians, both in this country and in Cambodia itself. Yeah. So uh, toward that end, we've designed an outreach program, a three-year outreach program that involves screenings here in the U.S., educational materials, and creating a Cambodian language version that can be screened in Cambodia while the trial takes place. Mm-hmm. So uh, the smaller fundraising screenings are to fundraise you know for the outreach
2: work. Very good. Well, there's a strong Orange County connection yes to uh, to this film, and there there's a significant uh, Cambodian population here in uh, Long Beach, I believe, has yes. a very strong Cambodian population. So people here in Southern California should be aware of what's going on not only with this film but your outreach program.
1: So. Yeah, absolutely. The Orange County connection is that my producer, Charles Vogel, grew up in Santa Ana.
2: We want to thank you so much for being here on on Film School. The The film is New Year Baby. And the filmmaker is Sujita Pove. Good luck to you in the, in the future and all your endeavors.
1: Thank you.
0: To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash film school.